Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, I am very excited to be joined by Pankaj Mishra, who is a brilliant writer, um, who is author of a series of books which are very relevant for this topic. His most recent book, published by Alan Lane, is called Age of Anger. But he also wrote another fantastic book a couple of years ago called From the Ruins of Empire, which looked uh, at some of the big historical questions which I think lie behind uh, the birth of the liberal order. So Pankaj, maybe we can go straight into the the meat of the question. Can can I ask you what the phrase liberal order means to you? Uh, It strikes me as a somewhat nonsense phrase because what we are really looking at here is an order created or an order that uh, very closely approximates to disorder uh, that was first created in the 19th century through conquest, colonization, trade, through imperialism, really. And um, in the 20th century, what we witnessed was decolonization in the mid-20th century. And what we are seeing today is the eclipse of the powers that brought this interconnected world into being in the first place in the 19th century. So former imperialists are suffering a devastating loss of power and authority at present. You can euphemize this development any which way you like. You can call it a liberal order and and lament its collapse and so on, but you cannot get away from these broader historical facts that the world that was created by imperialism in the 19th century is unraveling. And do you think it's something that we should be mourning or do you think it's an entirely positive development? It very much depends on where you are in the world. Uh, If you are, of course, a white upper middle class man in the West End or uh, New York's Upper West Side, there are obviously great reasons to mourn the disappearance of this order, which underpins so much knowledge so many of our leading intellectual assumptions in the Western world for so long. So obviously, when that power, when that authority collapses, uh, we have to urgently revise many of our leading ideas and assumptions. And that is what is happening today. If you are someone in China, you are looking at something very different. You're looking at the world from a very different perspective. Uh, you're, you're, You're seeing essentially the rise of a country that was very powerful for a very long time and that was humiliated in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and that is now re-emerged as a great power. And they are not the people who are going to be mourning the disappearance or the collapse of this liberal order. So it very much depends on where you are. I think the mistake we, we, we have continuously made is thinking of this 
from very parochial European or Euro-American perspectives. What would you say to people who, who uh, argue that the roots of this order might very well be about industry and empire and that there was a lot of violence um, which was involved in spreading um, these institutions and, and, and binding the world together in, in, uh, in the way that it has been economically um, and technologically, but that the order also did carry some really important values, which are maybe not just Western values now, um, you know, ideas about the protection of individuals, the rule of law, um, institutionalised ways of dealing with, with conflict between different countries. Do you, is that just a, a, the latest um, kind of euphemism for the, for the white man's burden, or is that something which you think has got some, some uh, value? No, I think we have to we have to look at this in a in a broader perspective. Of course, this order, as it came into being in the nineteenth century, offered unprecedented rights and freedoms to individuals. But again, we have to ask ourselves in which part of the world, and even within specific countries, to which particular classes. So, if you try and if you start breaking down um, the demographic, the particular populations, who, which amongst these populations were the beneficiaries of this liberal order, you're going to be looking at a very complex reality. Of course, all kinds of values were being propagated and advertised, but how many people were able to realize those values in the 19th century or subsequently? And wasn't the whole thing built upon an unsustainable amount of violence, whether the violence of imperialism, violence of slavery, and then, you know, going going much before that, um, genocide, the, the, the disappearance, the extermination of, 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 of many indigenous peoples living in, in the New World, in, in America and Australia and elsewhere. Uh, I think if you, if, you, if you look at the violence that was underpinning uh, the spread of markets, the spread of... Um, these values of individual rights and freedoms. And if you look at how many people were able to actually benefit, even within the modern West, from those values, from the spread of that prosperity, I think you're looking at a, at, at, at a much more um, complex historical picture. So what, what I'm trying to argue is that we should not forget that this civilization that was created in the 19th century was created by and for the benefit of a minority. It, of course, offered and promised all kinds of admirable values. And as I say, those values were also realized in certain societies by certain people. But uh, to, to, to say that uh, you know, this alone justifies uh, the violence that, that went into the making of this order and it validates that order, would I think uh, be making a terribly, terribly wrong moral judgment? I think that the question now is, is about the, the future as much as about the, the, the you know, the, the, the 19th century. And, you know, whatever forces gave birth to this order, um, the, I suppose one of the questions is whether the post-colonial um, anger and uh, grievances and uh, sentiments that, you, that you're sort of describing um, are going to end up 
setting back some of these freedoms, which have been spread to a much larger group of people than in the 19th century. And uh, also some of the, you know, new ideas about post-Westphalian ways of organising things and a kind of post-sovereignist way of thinking about things which, which have come out of, of Europe. There does seem to be a bit of a conflict between the sort of post-colonial sensibilities of countries that are trying to capture a, a, a kind of much more traditional idea of sovereignty and the way that um, a lot of Western countries have evolved their thinking of, of sovereignty towards a celebration of individual rights and the idea of protecting individuals from um, states rather than simply having, you know, Leviathan-esque states um, that could trample over the, the, the rights of their citizens so long as they didn't interfere in the sovereignty of other countries. Yes, we are, you know, looking at somewhat different historical cycles and, and trajectories here. Obviously, Europe having fought destructive wars, two wars in, in the same um, century, same half of the century, realized that it had to move towards a different political configuration in order to avoid those wars. And, and quite wisely, it arrived at a solution of sorts in the European community and eventually the European Union. Uh, when we look at countries like uh, China or Indonesia or, or India to take three uh, very populous countries, we are still looking at a process of post-colonial consolidation, which is, you know, in many, many instances has gone terribly, terribly wrong uh, in the sense that states have been empowered much, much more powerfully and, and, and states have become much more powerful than civil society. And this is the trend that now seems unstoppable in, in large parts of Asia and Africa today. But let's not forget that these problems also occurred in the 19th century in, 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 in Europe when national communities, nation building, all this work of building states, building political communities started. And uh, a lot of that went spectacularly wrong, as we saw uh, in, in the first uh, half of the 20th century. So my fear is that uh, large countries in Asia and Africa might be replicating some of this dreadful European history of the late 19th century and early 20th century. And Again, you know, the, the, the pathologies that we witnessed then of powerful states, economic crises, demagogues emerging to offer fake constellations, fake answers to all kinds of complex problems and, 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 and uh, masses being manipulated into voting for them. Uh, I think in, 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 in many ways, we haven't really retreated very far from the problems of sovereignty, nation building in a globalized world that we first saw in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And what we are seeing today in many ways is, a sort of, is, is, is the globalization of certain uniquely European problems. Is that is why I, I sort of part company with this whole rhetoric about the liberal order. The liberal order, as we know it, came into being after a destructive war that had leveled much of Europe and indeed much of Asia. 
And it was very much a stopgap measure. Uh, it was something that was always very precarious. Um, it depended on large numbers of people around the world in countries like China and India uh, remaining politically uh, quite non-assertive. And, and I think that period is now over. These, these societies have become more assertive, more dynamic, um, also wanting prosperity, power, strength, all these things that think other people have, Europeans have, Americans have for themselves. And unfortunately, there's just not enough of wealth to go around. Um, and, and I think what we are looking again at is a resumption of the kind of rivalries, uh, competition for scarce resources that we first saw in the late 19th century in Europe. We now see that globally. So Europe's past will be Asia's future? It could be. It could be. This is the fear. I think this is a fear we must entertain and perhaps we must build any kind of thinking about the world on that assumption rather than celebrate naively the rise of Asia. I mean, the libraries, the bookshops today are full of books with you know, this this particular theme, uh, how power is shifting from the West to the East and, and so on and so forth. But are these books, are we really reckoning with the political costs of this process, let alone uh, the environmental constraints, uh, the, yeah. the fact that uh, 2.4 billion Indians and Chinese uh, will need a couple more planets in order to enjoy the kind of prosperity or enjoy the levels of consumption that uh, a few million Europeans and Americans have, have, have enjoyed. So leaving aside all those environmental constraints, um, you know, what are the political risks of the extravagant promises of national power and wealth that have been offered to people in these countries? So you've put a huge number of really, really big things on the on the table there, which I, I'd like to, to go a bit deeper on some of them. But Maybe one way, one topic which we should explore um, as a way into some of these things is this whole idea of the age of anger, which you've written about. Um, you've described some of the elements of the anger in, in, in some of the things that you said so far, but can you maybe just explain what you mean by that concept and, and how you see that evolving and how that uh, is going to affect geopolitics and global politics as well as national politics? Well, you know, the book um, has a has a broad span. Um, it starts with certain philosophical debates in the late 18th century, but then it looks closely at the European 19th century. It's a very Eurocentric book, uh, and, and my argument, although I don't state it explicitly in the book, is that we need to be more Eurocentric, that we need to examine Europe's experience of modernization, industrialization, urbanization much, much more closely than we have. What we have taken from the story of Europe is an absurdly benign narrative of universal progress, which we have then applied to different parts of the world. But I think what this book argues is that we need to examine certain conjunctures in European history, most importantly, in the late 19th century, when countries, societies that felt left behind by the march of revolutions, industrial revolutions, political revolutions in the Atlantic West, and I'm speaking here specifically of countries like Germany, 
Italy, Russia to a certain extent, also Japan, when they started to catch up with the Atlantic West, France, Britain, and the United States. And the perfect storm of extravagant promises, economic crises, um, the problem of forming political communities, homogenous communities out of very diverse populations, all these things that we know came to a head in the in 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 the in the early 20th century, and the solutions were uh, imperial expansionism, ethnic cleansing, all kinds of uh, terrible atrocities as a result of those particular crises of the late 18th century, which were not which were never resolved, which just kind of got more and more aggravated. And my argument is that we need to look at those conjunctures uh, much, much more carefully and also think about them in relation to countries like India, Turkey, Russia, again, is still in the picture, still a country that is not quite modernized enough, has been pursuing this 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 goal of full modernization for a very long time and is still beset, is still struggling with these feelings of resentment, of humiliation. This is something that you see now in, 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 in Russia. This is something you see in Turkey. You see this in the rhetoric of Indian nationalists or Hindu nationalists in India. And this uh, really emerges, these, these complex of emotions, uh, out of, a, again, a particular historical conjuncture that you have a certain degree of growth, you bring a certain number of people out of destitution, out of poverty, you bring them into the middle class, you bring them into the lower middle class, and then you get stuck. And then, you, since you are part of the global economy, um, the various crises, various forms of uneven growth that you cannot escape uh, create all kinds of inequalities within your own society and political institutions become dysfunctional, are unable to respond to the, the mass disaffection that emerges as a result of those crises and those inequalities. And of course, though, then what we then see is the rise of authoritarianism. Again, a story that we have seen before uh, emerging out of a you know, similar complex of, of, of factors. So it's really a conjunctural history. It's a history of, of, of conjunctures, of forgotten conjunctures um, often, because um, we think uh, that the story of modernization, the story of industrialization, the story of globalization is one that is largely benign. I think uh, we couldn't have been more wrong in this regard, especially in the last two or three decades when elites uh, all over the world embrace this narrative of globalization without really thinking through uh, the, the longer history of this globalization. So if we um, relate the first half of our conversation with what you've just been saying now, what does that mean for what will follow from... Because in the first bit, you were talking about a sort of Western-led order that was receding as power shifts from um, West to East. But now you're saying that that's not going to be necessarily a very benign process, that there could be a lot of violence unleashed and uh, that uh, the history of... Uh, 
of Europe has got lots of warning signs in it. So what comes after the 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 the, the kind of post Cold War in your mind? Well, I think probably more disorder than we have seen in the last um, three or four decades. I mean, I think it's an important point to clarify because as someone who's from India uh, and someone who writes about uh, Asian history, I'm often identified as someone who's essentially a booster, an advocate of Asia or, or, or someone who's cheering this process of rising Asia or the shift of power from the West to the East. Um, these kinds of assessments couldn't be more wrong because I've consistently argued also in the previous book that you kindly mentioned from the ruins of empire. Uh, I described the process of post-colonial intellectual and political awakening and the resistance to Western imperialism. But I also point throughout the book and especially towards the end to the dangers of Asia repeating a Western experience of national self-strengthening, of competition, of conflict, and the possibility that you know we we might be looking at a much more apocalyptic scenario with the rising countries in Asia than we have had before, at least certainly certainly in the last um, half a half a century or more than half a century since the end of the Second World War. So I'm actually uh, extremely pessimistic about this whole process resulting in any kind of a stable order, really. I mean, I think, you know, we have to understand that this this order that we are speaking of really depended on a large part of the population remaining politically and economically inert, which was the case with India and China for much of the decades, for most of the decades since 1945. Once these countries enter the global economy with their you know, surplus labor force, with their large populations, uh, and, and in the case of India, overwhelmingly youthful population, then you're looking at a completely different scale of political disorder and economic crisis at the same time. So what can one do about it? Presumably you're not advocating that um, the West should reassert itself and try and stamp down on all of these rising powers and do what they can to 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 uh, extend their period of hegemony for a little bit further uh, for a few more years or a few more decades um you know i think it's actually very dangerous for intellectuals to offer prescriptions you know one of the things i i, I talk about in my book and indeed elsewhere is that uh intellectuals journalists commentators cheerleading um, very complex processes like globalization, offering universal prescriptions for all kinds of diverse societies around the world have actually led us to this sorry pass where we are unable to analyze and interpret the present situation in any kind of coherent, intelligible way because our categories of analysis, our concepts are so compromised, are so in a way uh, uh, sort of a product of a kind of in- intellectual, ideological intoxication, our, our, our kind of fanatical faith in a process of history that, you know, this is the way to go, free markets, democracy, if only countries were to embrace these broad principles and institutionalize them, then uh, we would be looking at a stable and secure future. 
all of these prophecies have been proved catastrophically wrong. And I feel as a, as a writer, my role really is to point to the dangers of ideological thinking and not join this process by offering universal prescriptions for incredibly diverse societies. If, if you were to ask me, what kind of prescription should I have? Where should we go next? In, say, my village in India, where I've spent most of my adult life, I would probably be able to give you some clear answers, you know, what kind of economy is uh, really needed there for, you know, people who are largely farmers or, or, or doing small jobs here and there. Uh, industrialization is not a prospect for them, is not a possibility in that region. So what kind of jobs, what kind of interventions should the government make in order to make life more tolerable for the local population? If you are, were to ask me that, I might be able to give you some clear answers about that. But I think, you know, in, in, in many ways today we are suffering from having the, the, the problems that we face really extending on such a vast scale beyond the comprehension of a single mind. And, you know, we, we try and sort of hold on to uh, our ideas and, and, and concepts, or, you know, sometimes using words like the liberal order. But the fact is that it really, this, this, this sheer complexity of the world eludes our comprehension most of the time. And we are really struggling to, to make sense of it most of the times. So if not intellectuals, then who should be coming out with prescriptions? Well, I think, you know, uh, the lived experience of people, of people who actually inhabit our respective societies, wherever you are in the world, whether you're in, 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 in London, in, uh, in, in North London, or in, in, a, in an Indian village, whatever ideas we have about how we should live, and, you know, this is really the fundamental question um, that gets lost in, in all the sort of larger uh, and, and, and more self-important talk about orders, as it were, uh, then if we trust people themselves uh, with people with experience to come up with ideas and solutions, and this is why we need more democracy, we need uh, more input from the bottom up, and we need to do away with this particular model where intellectuals or technocrats and experts prescribe solutions, you know, and, and in many ways you would probably agree with me that we are looking at a backlash against that kind of top-down socio-economic engineering today. And that backlash is taking a very ugly form, but it is a legitimate protest uh, by people whose lives have been radically reordered, radically reorganized, by impersonal, invisible, aloof intellectuals and, and, and technocrats. Um, so I think we should probably not try and make things worse by offering solutions or, or prescriptions, but actually looking at the prospects of, 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 of rebuilding democracy from the bottom up. That is really, if you were to ask me, what is the answer? I would say that is the answer today. So that's what you think the answer should be. Um, one of the things that does happen, though, is that the concepts developed by intellectuals or dead philosophers and economists or whatever it was that Keynes um, said they, they, they came from often build up a life of their own and, and shape things. And the, the ideas that we've had uh, been living through now, a lot of them, as you said, have been kind of European ideas. I'm just wondering, as somebody who is a... a, a 
uh, an intellectual historian who has looked at a lot of other places that are trying to uh, go through this period, this process of awakening, um, and who are also synthesizing ideas from the European Enlightenment and mixing them with other kind of cultures. Do you think, what do you think the big ideas that might emerge from other places are? I mean, I know you look both at, uh, at the kind of history in, in From the Ruins of Empire, which was a really thrilling book to read, but also um, we both, I know spent a fair amount of time talking to intellectuals in China and, and some critical thinkers in other places. I mean, if you had to name some of the currents of thinking which are coming up from outside of the West or which which might have an impact on the next wave of order, what, what, what would you point to? You know, unfortunately, none of the intellectuals or writers or activists that one could mention in this regard, whether in Java or India or, or China, are powerful or influential enough for their ideas to be institutionalized in, 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 in government policy. So what we have really in various movements, organizations across Asia, Latin America too, are individuals, uh, specific local movements, regional movements, trying to make a difference, trying to push back against universalist notions of progress and development, all premised on one particular model of growth and progress, which is that all societies have to industrialize, all societies have to urbanize, all societies have to have their populations basically move from rural areas to urban areas. If you look at India in the last 60, 70 years, that is the model we've been following very, very closely. Now, the results of that are extremely clear, is that urbanization has been a massive disaster. Most of our, most of our cities are uninhabitable. Their resources are simply not enough to accommodate the millions of people that are arriving there, or many more millions that actually want to be there. Life in the countryside has become untenable for many. Uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of farmers, in fact, have committed suicides because life has become so intolerable for so many people in 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 the countryside. Uh, similar stories and elsewhere. Now, the people who are trying to make a difference are saying that why do we have to follow a model that is simply not suitable for us in the phase of socioeconomic development that we are at. Why are we pursuing industrialization when it's becoming very clear that even if we industrialize by some miracle, we will never be a manufacturing powerhouse? That opportunity has been embraced by other countries. Furthermore, automation is on its way. So you can train all these people to work in factories, to work in industries, but their jobs will soon be rendered redundant. So people who can kind of think through existing ideas and prejudices, who can actually see what is going on. And I you know, spoke to you of my village. I see that process very closely within my village of people trained to do certain things that are expected of them and then realizing that they are sometimes temperamentally unfit to actually live in a big city, or that the big city has nothing to offer to them. There are no jobs. So they come back, uh, and then they have to find a new way of being in the in the world. So 
I think if you are if you are looking at um, large parts of Asia, which are in the process of industrializing, often in the process of deindustrializing, then we have to look at then we have to figure out sustainable modes of being for them, economically and politically. And this is why I become a critic, uh, a, a, a very strong critic of universalist notions of, of progress and development, uh, the kind of ideas that are wended by our intellectual ecosystem. You and I are very much a part of that um, through you know, think tanks, newspapers, uh, NGOs, politicians, aid agencies. This is the human rights organizations. This is the particular model that has been vended universally. But we know that you know, societies uh, are incredibly diverse um, internally too. I mean, countries like India, and that human needs are are are, are different in in each one of these societies. And I think the wisest thinkers are those who acknowledge that and devise uh, local solutions. Okay. And are there any places which are developing the sort of local solutions that you think we need? Well, I wish I could, you know, point to one particular country, but. When you look around the world, you really can only think about places where there is actually a, 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 a you know a degree of isolation is enforced. Where uh, I'm thinking actually, North uh, Korea. Uh, well, exactly, uh, or 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 take a different example like Bhutan, where they have a global happiness index in Bhutan. I think. Well, yes, I mean different 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 ways of evaluating. Uh, human life and its possibilities, uh, which is an age, which is an interesting idea. I think you know people have been thinking about Amartya Sen. Many many other economists have been have been have been talking about this, as you know. Uh, but you know, I do think we need different kind of thinking about our global futures. That that one phase uh, of universal ideas, which was advanced first by imperialism and then through globalization. That has really come to an end. We are looking at an impasse there. Uh, we call it the liberal order because you know that is sort of how we are accustomed to think of it, especially in the West here. But uh, what we really are looking at is essentially the dysfunction on a global scale of these ideologies of progress. And now we have to sort of come up with if we do want to maintain some of the some of the achievements of that progress. And we have to come up with different ideas. So I, it's been fascinating talking to you. I ask all the guests two questions to, to end the podcast. I'm going to ask you those questions as well. Um, the first is a very simple thing, which is to complete the sentence, the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I think uh, the liberal order is a euphemism that should really now be retired and replaced with uh, the world that imperialism made. Okay. And the second question is for people who are interested in going a little bit deeper. Um, we, if you had to put together a reading list for them, obviously at the top of the reading list we'll have The Age of Anger and From the Ruins of Empire. But what other books or articles should people read? Um, now, I have a much longer list than I could actually uh, even remember. You know, I mean, for a historical span for a, for a really historical argument. I can't think of a better book than The Birth of the Modern World by Christopher Bailey. 
a sequel to that is coming out very soon, I think in October. I feel that book really eliminates the world that we live in today, although it's largely about the 19th century, but it really does illustrate the extent to which the world we live in was created in the 19th century. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for, for making the time to talk. It's been absolutely fascinating. From Pankaj Mishra and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the end of the world series and if you write a review we will even if it's bad we will send you an end of the world mug to your address so please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Mm-hmm.